As climate change-induced floods devastate Pakistan, Liz Truss has committed to expanding UK oil and gas fields and is reportedly set to put some pretty worrying people in top energy jobs. It's really not looking good when it comes to the UK's impact on climate change. That's our theme tonight. I'm joined by Dahlia Gabriel. How are you doing, Dahlia? I am looking forward to dragging Jacob Rees-Mogg with you. That's going to be fun. A light relief from the devastation that his appointment represents. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say his appointment is not a light relief because his appointment is going to be really disastrous for humanity. But yeah, a lot of material, a lot of material there for us to work with. While ordinary Britons struggle with an acute cost of living crisis, some luckier ones are set to be laughing all the way to the bank. That's because, according to internal treasury documents, UK energy firms are set to make a whopping £170 billion in excess profits over the next two years. Yes, £170 billion. That possible windfall would accrue to gas producers and energy generators. And excess profits are the difference between what energy producers are predicted to actually make and the profits they could have expected to make based on the outlook for prices before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In other words, they are the windfall these firms will make thanks to the war in Ukraine. They would therefore be prime targets for a windfall tax, yet our likely future prime minister has already made her views on those clear. One thing I absolutely don't support is a windfall tax. I think it's a Labour idea, it's all about bashing business, and it sends the wrong message to international investors and to the public. The message Liz Truss seems to be keen to send to international investors and the public is that, yes, you too can make billions of unearned wealth due to the outbreak of a war. I'm not sure what economic theory justifies that particular statement. Meanwhile, Liz Truss looks set to give another bung to oil and gas companies in the form of licenses to keep drilling for fossil fuels. This week, it's been reported that she's keen to grant up to 130 new drilling licenses in the North Sea. The immediate effect that will have on energy prices is unclear, given these can take decades to come on tap. What it will do, though, is lock us into a high-carbon future. Greg Parr is chief scientist at Greenpeace UK. He said this, Unleashing a North Sea drilling frenzy isn't a plan to help bill payers, but a gift to the fossil fuel giants already making billions from this crisis. New oil and gas could take a quarter of a century to pump out will be eventually sold at global prices and have no real impact on energy bills, yet still fuel the climate crisis. Of course, we've known for a while now that Truss has a penchant for fossil fuels. For example, throughout the Conservative leadership campaign, she's never missed an opportunity to back fracking. We need to make sure we're using our reserves in the North Sea and incentivizing companies to do that. We need to make sure we're fracking in parts of the country where there is local support for that taking place. The Tory cheers are what always really freaks me out in those situations. Why do they all love fracking so much? Do they own shale fields? Like, I, I can't imagine many of them do. So is it that the destruction of the planet just turns them on? It's creepy, it's bizarre. Whatever the case, it's clear that neither Truss nor her Tory base support fracking because they prioritise keeping Britain's lights on. I think one of the most depressing sights when you're driving through England is seeing fields that should be full of crops or livestock full of solar panels. I will... 
so weird. That's how you get a big round of applause at a Tory hustings. You say, what we're going to do is we're going to begin fracking. We're going to stop the moratorium on fracking. Fracking, by the way, incredibly dangerous, partly because there's these sort of local issues. What does it do to the water supply? But the main issue from, from, from my perspective is that you release methane in the process. So natural gas, that is methane. When you burn it, it is slightly greener than coal. You know, it still creates CO2, but it creates less CO2 than, than coal does if you're making electricity with it. The big danger, though, is that when you're fracking, when you're having these little explosions to get it out of rocks in the ground, some of that leaks into the atmosphere. Methane is actually way, way, way more damaging than CO2. So fracking, big round of applause. We love fracking solar farms. We hate solar farms. If you say you're going to ban solar farms, you get a big round of applause for that as well. These people really just want us all to die. That's the only conclusion I can really come to. Dahlia, Liz Truss hates wind. She hates solar. She loves fracking. And now she's going to be giving out 130 licenses to drill in the North Sea. How screwed are we? I feel like you can always rely on a Tory audience to cheer on the annihilation of humanity, like whether it's climate crisis or pressing the red button, like there's a real death drive that is just powering this entire party, which if it was just them, whatever, but it impacts all of us. And so it's devastatingly terrifying. Once these energy prices go up, and it becomes normalized, this idea that we, you know, the cap is going up and up in this uncontrollable way, is not in line with wages, yet these companies are also making these obscene profits. Once you normalize that under the guise of a crisis, prices rarely go back to where they were before. It's much easier to raise prices than to bring them back down. So at this point, it feels that, you know, attempts to sell this as a kind of natural law of economics or a kind of you know, existential crisis that we have no power to, to control how it's distributed or how it plays out. It's very clear that that is an entirely false narrative and that what we are experiencing right now is a classic example of a shock doctrine where a crisis is used in order to secure interests and secure norms that are ultimately harmful to the rest of us and that we would not accept prior to that crisis and we should not accept in the middle of a crisis as well. I feel like we're, we're now saying, oh, if only the bills could be frozen at £2,000 when they were £1,000 a year ago. Now, now that seems affordable. I do just want to return you know, very quickly to the point of this distinction between the solar, the wind, and the gas, and the, the approach of the Conservatives. Because the argument they're going to use right now is to say, look, there is a gas shortage now. We're feeling the effects of it. And they're right. There is a gas shortage now and we're feeling the effects of it. That's why energy prices are going through the roof, partly profiteering, but also because there is a shortage because we have been over-reliant on Russia or Europe in general has been over-reliant on Russia and that's pushing up the prices. But the reason that doesn't really stack up is because if Jacob Rees-Mogg was standing up, if Liz Truss was standing up, if all of these people were, were standing up and saying, whatever can get energy, whatever can get electricity into your houses, we will back right? That would at least be, I would, I would disagree, but it would at least be a respectable position if they say, gas, let's do it, solar, let's do it, wind, let's do it. Now, again, I don't necessarily agree. I think we should be more ambitious than that and we should be winding down gas because we are already seeing the catastrophic effects of climate change, but at least it would be coherent. But that's not what they're doing. They aren't standing up and saying, whatever it takes to get cheap energy in your house, we'll do it. No, they're saying, oh no, solar, we couldn't possibly do um, solar farms. Wind, onshore wind, we couldn't possibly do that. But for some reason, fracking, which is 
uglier and more environmentally destructive, even you know, to the local area than, than, than wind farms is or solar farms. That's fine. And offshore oil and gas is fine. I can't find any coherency in that narrative whatsoever, other than your only interest being, how do we fill the pockets of, of oil and gas giants? There's no other way to make that story make sense, unless you are just looking at the conservatives and the conservative base as people who are fighting this sort of self-destructive culture war where they just want to back anything that the left and progressives are against, even if that means hurtling us towards the apocalypse. Very distressing times. Um, we are going to get now onto a story which is showing how the sharp end of climate change is really impacting people right now. Pakistan is still counting the costs of the floods which have devastated the country. 1,160 people have so far been confirmed to have been killed in the disasters caused by heavier than usual monsoon rains and melting glaciers that followed a severe heat wave. On Monday, Pakistan's Minister of Climate Change said around one-third of the country was underwater, affecting 33 million people. In a message on Tuesday, the UN's disaster relief spokesperson said 500,000 people displaced by the floods were sheltering in relief camps. They estimate that 1 million homes have been damaged and over 700,000 livestock have been lost. Pakistan's planning minister has suggested the floods have caused at least £8.5 billion worth of damage. Earlier today, I spoke to Assad Raymond, who is director of War on Want and co-founder of the Climate Justice Coalition. Assad was born in Pakistan and has spent years raising the issue of Pakistan's vulnerability to climate change. I began by asking him to explain exactly what caused these disastrous floods. So what Pakistan is suffering now is, from, of course, from a torrential downpour. It's the UN have called it a monsoon on steroids. But, uh, of course, what it really is is a climate crisis coming into contact with structural inequality, poverty, and global temperatures, rising global temperatures. So Pakistan is, um, just in this last year, of course, has seen not just the fact that these rains, the monsoon rains, have come much sooner than they were expected, and of course, much heavier than they're expected. But they've been combining, of course, with rising temperatures. Earlier this year, Pakistan recorded temperatures of 53 degrees centigrade. Now, Pakistan is also home to 7,000 glaciers, which is the largest amount in any single country. And as temperatures rise, those glaciers begin to melt and glacier lakes begin to overflow. And so when you have these torrential rains added into that mix, we see the country being flooded. So can you unpack in a bit more detail, to what extent is the vulnerability of Pakistan to climate change? Is it, is it, is it where the location of the country, the sort of geological features of the country, and to what extent is this, is this a social problem and about poverty? Pakistan, like many other countries in the global south, have a geographical vulnerability because the reality of the climate crisis is that those countries who are the least responsible are the ones being most impacted. Pakistan has contributed less than 1% to global emissions, yet has a vulnerability of putting it at the seventh most vulnerable country in the world. But it's also structural. So when we see floods take place, for example, in Europe and in Germany in 2021, we saw the German government immediately be able to intervene and provide 30 billion euros to be able to support their communities to rebuild, to invest in early warning systems and to rebuild those affected areas. Pakistan had absolutely no money to be able to do that, had to go cap in hand to the IMF to beg for more debt creating loans and is now making a global appeal saying we need 10 billion 
dollars to be able to rebuild. The reality is countries in the global south are starved of both the resources, the technology, and don't have the capacity to be able to deal with these climate crises. And that's because we've deliberately impoverished the global south through our trade system, through our tax system, through the way that our corporate and global neoliberal economy operates, but also added on to that, of course, now is the toxic vulnerability of the climate crisis. This is the never-ending crisis that we talked about, the permanent crisis for the global south coming together. And what we're seeing is the global north turning its back and leaving the global south to burn. That's why what we, when we talk about climate apartheid and when the UN says this is the era of climate apartheid, Pakistan immediately demonstrates that. The wealthiest countries in the world, when they deal with crisis, have the resources to be able to support their citizens and rebuild. And the global south, the poorest in the world, are left simply to burn or drown. And um, we've talked sort of during climate negotiations before about how one of the sticking points has sort of consistently been that the countries of the global north, the richer world, is not willing to do the kind of technology transfer and, and cash transfers that are required um, to help poorer countries adapt to climate change. Are we seeing here basically the, the consequence of that, the consequence of the failure for the global north to support the global south? The question of climate finance, of course, is, is intrinsic to how we deal with this, with the reality of this never-ending crisis for the global south. Many countries in the global south face structural inequalities and injustices, part of a global economy which has stripped them of resources and finance and, of course, fed those to the global north. And that's a, both a historical issue, both from during colonialism, where Britain took out forty-three trillion pounds from the subcontinent, to of course during the with neoliberalism of structural adjustment programs, demands on on countries in the global south to develop their economies in particular ways to ensure that they didn't spend money on public services, on cutting their domestic expenditure, on the very things that are of course now needed to deal with the with the climate catastrophe. But the rich countries did promise uh, 13 years ago to provide 100 billion in finance to the global south to be able to deal both with the adaptive measures that are needed. 13 years later, that promise is nowhere near being met. In fact, only a third of that money has been made available. The money is in debt creating loans. Of course, the global north still takes out huge amounts of money from countries like Pakistan in debt reservice payments. So Pakistan in 2020 was up for paying 12 billion. And at this very moment, I was scheduled to pay hundreds of millions back to the IMF. And uh, yesterday, the IMF agreed a new tranche of loans to Pakistan. And of course, conditions are, will be attached to those loans, which will mean more further cuts in their domestic public expenditure, particularly around health provision, around public services, all the various things that now the people of Pakistan more urgently need. And of course, this is a country where 80% of people live in poverty and face issues around hunger. So those structural inequalities also have to do with how people of Pakistan are able to respond to this crisis. It's said that much of Pakistan basically already struggles to barely survive. And when these catastrophes come along, they, of course, are left with no resilience and no option and an inability to be able to survive at all. And that's why we're seeing that of the 33 million people directly affected, the millions of homes, schools and hospitals that have been wiped out, the fact that Pakistan is not just under half the country is underwater, but that many of Pakistan's farmers of, of local communities have lost all of their food production, have lost up to 90% of their livestock. This is going to be a crisis that lasts decades for Pakistan to be able to recover, if it can ever recover, of course, because the vulnerability that it has, both 
geographically, you know, it is home to 7,000 glaciers. Uh, and as temperatures rise, those glaciers begin to melt, glacier lakes begin to overflow. And then that combined with, of course, supercharged monsoons, typhoons, hurricanes, all of these basically overwhelm a country's ability, no matter how strong its infrastructure, to be able to survive these kind of catastrophes. And so you've got there, I mean, it's, it's almost overwhelming. You've got this, this compounding situation of a lack of economic resources to recover from this crisis. And then given the speed at which climate change is moving and the particular vulnerabilities of Pakistan, it's quite likely that as it starts to rebuild, you have another disaster. In that sort of maelstrom of, of problems, what should the priorities be? You know, how should people be thinking, this is how, I mean, obviously we're in the West, how the West could be or helping Pakistan or, or stopping doing the things which are actively harming it. What should we be focusing on now? Rich countries' response, including the UK, literally can be summed up as, we're arsonists, we've just burned down your home, and now we're sending you a get-well card. I mean, the response has been absolutely pathetic. Western governments fail to fulfil their pledges. So even on the most urgent things about how do you get food, fresh water, how do you stop the diseases from, of course, uh, overcoming uh, what is now a traumatised part of, of Pakistan's population. But the real question next is, of course, is what do we do? Well, the first thing we can do is stop making the problem worse. We know that the extreme weather impacts are directly linked and connected to the expansion of fossil fuels. And it's deeply ironic that there was the UK and the, uh, and the Prime Minister Boris Johnson was tweeting condolences to the people of Pakistan. We're also hearing the government announcing a new wave of licenses and approvals for North Sea gas and oil exploration. So we know that fossil fuels is the fire that is burning the planet. Stop expansion of fossil fuels. And the UK and particularly rich countries have the technology, have the resources and the capacity to be able to say no to the expansion of fossil fuels. Of course, we know that the reason they won't do is because it's incredibly lucrative. The fossil fuel industry has a hold on our political system. Over the last three decades, it's made two trillion in profit, and it's already banking on making billions more in the face of both the cost of living crisis and, of course, the climate crisis. The second thing that Britain and other rich countries need to do, of course, is provide immediate climate finance. But also really importantly, they've got to stop blocking progress on what is called loss and damage. And loss and damage exactly speaks to the question that the people of Pakistan face, which is once the humanitarian crisis is over, how does Pakistan rebuild? Where does it get the $10 billion that it's needed? How does but does Pakistan invest in the, the uh, both its economy and its people to build that climate resilience of recognizing, of course, that these damages that Pakistan is seeing are often, you know, impossible now to recover from. But rich countries basically are refusing to accept any liability for these kind of climate catastrophes. And as long as they continue to refuse to accept liability, then countries like the Global South will have absolutely no option but to go cap in hand for more debt-creating loans to be able to deal with these crises. That was Asad Rayman speaking to me earlier today. And War on Want, his organization is launching an appeal for the Pakistan labor movement organization, Labor Education Center, which is providing humanitarian assistance through its union networks for low-paid workers and their communities. So you can check out the War on Want website from tomorrow if you'd like to donate. As the effects of climate change intensify, Liz Truss becoming prime minister is looking to be pretty disastrous for the future of humanity. Truss backs drilling for more oil and gas and backs fracking, 
Meanwhile, she opposes onshore wind and has a bizarre hatred of wind farms. She is, in short, the last leader we need. And it only gets worse when we assess who's set to be in her top energy team. It's long been touted that current business and energy secretary Kwasi Kwarteng is set to be Truss's chancellor, giving him key strategic direction over the British economy. Kwarteng has so far been one of the biggest proponents of drilling for North Sea gas, even going so far as to reclassify the fossil fuel as a source of green energy. That was to encourage pension funds to stop divesting in the industry. And now, according to the Times, the person set to take up Kwarteng's current job is this man, Jacob Rees-Mogg. He is being lined up as the new Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. And that's a concern because Mogg has long been a critic of climate action. Back in 2013, as a backbencher, he blamed high energy prices on what he called climate alarmism, arguing that people will die this winter because of the environmentalist obsession with the end of the world. In the piece, he wrote this. There are cheap sources of energy, either available or possible, but there is a reluctance to use them. Coal is plentiful and provides the least expensive electricity per megawatt, while fracking may provide a boon of shale gas. Unfortunately, coal-fired power stations are being shut down because of European Union regulations and shale gas exploration is moving at a slow pace. So back in 2013, Rees-Mogg was arguing for the expansion of coal, the absolute dirtiest of fossil fuels. And in that same article, he wrote this. It is widely accepted that carbon dioxide emissions have risen, but the effect on the climate remains much debated while computer modelling that has been done to date has not been proved especially accurate. Skeptics remember that computer modelling was behind the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the global financial crisis. Common sense dictates that if the meteorological office cannot forecast the next season's weather with any success, it is ambitious to predict what will happen decades ahead. Now, anyone who's followed the climate change debate over the past decades will recognize what Rees-Mogg said there as a classic example of climate denial, trying to seed doubt where it shouldn't be. And now, if reports are true, this guy is set to be in charge of Britain's climate response. And it actually gets worse, I'm afraid to say. This is Rees-Mogg in 2017. How important do you think a green environmental approach to politics is? Nowadays. Depends what um, you're offering. Um, I would like my constituents to have cheap energy rather more than I would like them to have windmills. <laughs> so, you're, do, well, global warming, for example, is, is, is that for you a serious issue, man-made uh, uh, climate change, or perhaps you, you don't accept okay. that? If you read the IPCC report on this, it said that if we were to take action now to try and stop man-made global warming, it would have no effect for hundreds or possibly a thousand years. I'm all in favour of long-term policy making, but I think trying to forecast the climate for a thousand years and what little steps you make now, having an ability to change it, is unrealistic. And I think the cost of it is probably unaffordable. That was a complete lie. There has been no IPCC report which says that actions taken now will only have an effect in centuries' time. He is in fact twisting a very different claim that it could take centuries to reverse the climate change that has already happened. Of, of course, if we cut emissions now, that is going to have an effect before centuries' time. It's going to have an effect to limit the catastrophe of climate change, even if it can't 
reverse the climate change we have experienced so far. Now, if you're wondering why Rees-Mogg has this hostility to climate science and to renewable energy, this could provide a clue. It's a report from 2014 on Rees-Mogg failing to declare interest when intervening in debates in the House of Commons. The interesting question? Investments in tobacco and energy firms. Finally, just in case you suspected that the extreme weather we've witnessed in the past couple of years might have changed Mogg's mind when it comes to climate action, here he is speaking to Nick Ferrari earlier this year. I think what we actually need is to make the economy more efficient. We need the supply-side reforms that take obstacles out of this country. We need to be um, thinking about extracting every last cubic inch of gas from the North Sea because we want security of supply. But 2050 is a long time off. We're not trying to become net zero tomorrow, and we are going to need fossil fuels in the interim, and we should use ours that we have got available. And these are supply-side reforms. These are regulatory reforms uh, that that allow things to to happen and to happen quickly. Yes, Jacob Rees-Mogg wants to cut regulations so that every last drop of gas can be extracted from the North Sea. This is despite the International Energy Agency stating in a recent landmark report, there is no need for investment in new fossil fuel supply in our net zero pathway. Beyond projects already committed as of 2021, there are no new oil and gas fields approved for development in our pathway and no new coal mines or mine extensions are required. Now, that was thought of as being particularly significant because that wasn't a climate change body. That was the International Energy Agency. They've often been um, a bit of an advocate the development of fossil fuels. Their role when it comes to UN organizations is to say, how do we get enough energy into the world? Even they are saying, we do not need any new oil. We do not need any new gas fields. Now, Jacob Rees-Mogg, but it also applies to Liz Truss. It also applies to Kwasi Kwarteng. They are desperate to open as many new oil and gas fields as they can in the North Sea. Dahlia, I want to know your thoughts on these briefings that Jacob Rees-Mogg looks set to be the business and energy secretary, be a big promotion for him and putting him in charge of a really, really strategic role. Just when you think you've seen like the worst case scenario, I feel like British politics just like humbles you in the most brutal way. Basically, to, to kind of really simply put it, we have fewer than 10 years now to mitigate against the most extreme and irreversible impacts of climate breakdown. And that involves not digging any, like decommissioning all fossil fuel projects and certainly not starting any new ones. Um, And instead, uh, Britain, which is a nation that arguably has the biggest historical responsibility for the climate crisis that we are in, has put in essentially a climate denier by another kind of appearance as energy secretary. You know, saying things like throwing into dispute uh, the ability of climate scientists to accurately model or to seriously model or to basically model the seriousness of climate change is a form of climate denialism as far as I'm concerned. That is catastrophic, actually, that we have decided to use these precious years um, and give them to someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg. It's, it's deeply unforgivable, especially given the historic role that Britain has played in bringing the world into this crisis to begin with. You know, it's just such a wasted opportunity because for so many of the reasons that you've outlined, you know, 
it's the extreme weather that has been seen in Britain over the summer, that the cost of living crisis and the particular way this is playing out along the lines of energy. You know, this could be a moment where we really reckon with the fact that our energy system has been broken for a really long time. Like energy, it's long been unaffordable for most of the global population. The way that energy is extracted and distributed has had devastating consequences politically, ecologically, in all senses around the world. You know, our energy system has always actually been really bad at doing what an energy system is supposed to do, which is to make sure that as many people around the world have enough energy to heat their home, cook their food, connect with their loved ones, connect with one another, etc. And even though technologically delivering that is fully within our capabilities, it's not being delivered because of the particular way that our energy system is designed and the energy source that we continually insist on using. And by we, I obviously don't mean everyday people. I mean, basically energy execs. And now the ineffectiveness and the violence of that system is starting to really hit the global north. This should be a time where globally we can really form bonds of solidarity and talk about and and figure out how we are going to make real the dramatic changes that we need to make of our energy system, of decommodifying and decarbonizing um, our energy system. You know, doing that in the time frame that we have is not an easy feat. Even if we threw everything that we have at it, we might not manage it. It requires like all hands on deck. It requires a collaborative, global, committed effort. And yet, instead of doing that, we are wasting precious time having arguments and discussions with people like Jacob Rees-Mogg that range from like the completely facile, like debating how attractive solar panels and wind farms are to the downright murderous, which is, you know, commissioning new fossil fuel projects, given the science that we know, you know, future generations, if they ever exist, um, will look back in absolute horror at what people like Rees-Mogg and Truss were allowed to do with these precious years that we cannot get back. I often thought sort of the comparisons of of Boris Johnson to Donald Trump were often a bit overblown, but this this does seem a bit like a Donald Trump appointment. Obviously, this would be Liz Truss making making this appointment, not Boris Johnson, putting someone who has a history of not really believing in climate change in the the department that is responsible for climate change, and then also having this sort of just bizarre politics of of saying onshore wind we couldn't possibly do that, solar farms we couldn't possibly do that. And saying it to their base in, in the Tory party. Like it, it reminds me of those Donald Trump speeches where he's talking to his really right-wing Republican base, sort of complaining about how wind farms kill birds. Now, when we watched those clips in the UK, everyone was like, God, what an insane guy. Thank God, you know, our politicians might be bad, but at least they're not Donald Trump. Now, we have the next government looks set to, and actually this has been a case for, for a long time, it's, it's essentially impossible to build new onshore wind because it's so easy to object to it. Local communities don't get to have a vote and make a majority decision on whether you build wind farms onshore. If you have a few people who are against it, it doesn't happen. Now, that's, that, that's not the case of all developments, but the Tories have made that the case with onshore wind because they have some ideological, dogmatic opposition to it. 
Now we're seeing exactly the same thing with solar farms. And I do just feel like if it was Donald Trump saying what Jacob Rees-Mogg and Liz Truss are saying, people in this country would be, oh, God, what are they doing over there? How have they let this person get into power? Isn't this terrible? We're, we're all completely alive to the risks of climate change because we're sensible, educated people. What's wrong with them over there? We've now got these people who are about to enter office here, right? Boris Johnson was silly. Boris Johnson was stupid. These people are actually more ideologically committed to the end of the world than Boris Johnson was. Apparently, it was often reported that he was sort of pushing back against this idea that we should unban fracking or that we should go hell for leather in terms of, of digging in the North Sea. Potentially, his girlfriend, now wife, was you know, somewhat concerned about climate change and, and green issues. These people are more extreme than Boris Johnson, and they're getting closer and closer to the Donald Trump wing of politics when it comes to climate change. That's very, very scary. Very, very scary. Especially when you're looking at the kind of scenes we're seeing in Pakistan right now, the kind of scenes we're seeing in the Horn of Africa. Climate change is killing a lot of people right now, and we are putting these amateur jokers in power who get their climate science from like the back pages of The Spectator and then weird blogs by James Dellingpole. Like it's it's terrifying and it's you know the consequences are going to be really disastrous. And I don't think people in this country have woken up to quite how extreme our next government is going to be. Next story. How would you feel about a single ticket which costs you nine pounds a month and gets you unlimited travel on Britain's regional trains, subways, trams, and buses? Well, it doesn't matter because you're not going to get one. But for the past three months, people in Germany have been able to. The policy was implemented to try and soften the blow of increased inflation, but it has also had positive side effect, saving 1.8 million tonnes of CO2. That's equivalent to powering 350,000 homes for a year. According to research from the VDV Public Transport Network, in the course of the pilot, some 52 million of the tickets have been sold, with one in 10 buyers ditching at least one of their daily auto trips. The finding was based on results from a government-commissioned survey. Dahlia, you've been in Germany the last couple months. Have you taken advantage of this ticket? Oh, there isn't a single corner of Berlin that hasn't seen me. Like, I have been everywhere. Like, as a Londoner, this has been a complete revelation for me. Although one thing I actually find really interesting is um, I read somewhere that it actually would have been cheaper to just let everyone have free transport because rather than pay the nine euros for the monthly ticket, because, you know, you have to pay for the tickets to be printed and the app to be, like, designed and the, you know hire ticket inspectors to check that everyone has their nine euro tickets. If that is the case, I think it's really interesting about, you know, why they wouldn't just make it free instead of having this nine euros. I think there's like this general sense that, you know, you can't get people used to the idea that anything can be free, which, which kind of sucks. But generally, it's been incredible. It's been so transformative. You know, I've, I've always, you know, abstractly supported the notion of subsidized or free transport because you know, on paper, it's just obviously like such a good idea. But actually living with what has essentially felt like free transport, I'm an absolute free transport fundamentalist. Like it has so many knock-on effects that are just so wonderful. You know, my partner went back to London for like two days, more than two days, a few days. And he was, because he had to go to a wedding. And in literally less than 24 hours that he had been in London, TfL had just charged him 11 pounds, which like, given I've been living on this nine euro a month ticket, 
felt, I was just like, I actually looked at that for how wild and unreasonable it actually is. Whereas when I was in London, that just was normalized. But one thing, you know, when I talk about the knock-on effects, obviously the climate impact is really important. But there's also like, I didn't anticipate how much of a difference not having to pay astronomical prices to get around the city would make to just my overall quality of life. Like I tweeted about this earlier, but I think it's worth repeating that I've been here writing on my PhD. And when I'm doing a kind of big work project like that, I can get a bit isolated. I can get a bit introverted. Like I'm already a bit of a homebody and, you know, I can kind of lose myself in it and end up getting kind of low and getting quite depressed actually. But having this essentially free transport basically means that when I'm weighing up like, oh, you know, it's probably good for me to go out and do something, see my friends or whatever. But I really feel really drawn to just kind of spending the evening alone and being at home um, with my partner or whatever. Now that I have this free transport, it's like, look, I'll just go out on a limb. I'm not, it doesn't, literally doesn't cost me anything. And if I don't want to be there after 10 minutes, I'll just come home. Obviously, what ends up happening is that I've ended up having like this much fuller life and I feel so much more connected to like the city and to my friends here and to to everything just by that small adjustment of not having to pay £10 a day on travel, which is what I was paying, you know, in London that that was what it would cost to have a commute to and from my office and to do like one other thing in the day go to the gym go and see my friends or or whatever and you know even if you would take away that as well the environmental impacts and the the well-being impact even if you are a growth economics person like from the growth economics perspective not having to spend that 10 quid a day on travel means that basically i'm like getting a coffee every day from a local coffee shop, or I'm buying a sandwich from a local bakery. Uh, I'm I'm going to a museum. I'm I'm getting a beer with friends and I'm doing, I'm spending that 10 pounds on that instead of, you know, to a private train company. And so I'm spending money in the economy. I'm giving tips to hospitality workers. It's, it's that whole concept of like getting the economy going. Something so simple as that has just made a massive impact on the distribution of where I'm spending my money. And for me, it, it's just proved what so many of us in the climate justice movement have said for years, which is that so many of the measures that are needed to tackle the climate crisis are actually measures that are good for us in so many other ways. Because the system that privatizes our basic needs, that takes our basic needs and makes it into commodities for you know big companies to extract as much money from as possible, that is the same system that's destroying our planet. And when you correct that system, you not only make our planet more sustainable, but you open up our imagination and our ability to access all of these different services and to rewire our economy around care and around people's needs rather than around the needs of BP or Shell. And so a lot of the time we think about, you know, taking action on climate, we've been told that it's all about, you know, what we're not going to be able to have anymore about this kind of green austerity narrative, which is completely false because Yes, of course, you know, our consumption patterns are going to change, but we're going to gain so much and so much that is so much more meaningful than the things that capitalism has sold us. There's so many different kinds of luxury and different kinds of things like clean air, like free transport, like well insulated housing. 
And these are all things that taking action on climate change and tackling the root causes of climate change will liberate us to do. And, you know, in this really tiny way, which is just having subsidized public transport, so many of those things that I always believed politically in, you know, in a kind of abstract sense, I've got in like the tiniest little window into what that could actually look like in reality. It runs out at the end of this month, doesn't it? What's the... Is there a big movement to keep it going? What, mm. what, what are the political parties saying we want to keep it? Who wants to get rid of it? As you would think, like the Green Party, the left parties are saying, you know, either continuing it as, at nine years. I actually have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. That's kind of one weird thing about every time I Google it, it's like discussions are being had about what to do. And it's like, <laughs> it's literally in like less than four hours, like what's going to happen, guys? But essentially what I think will happen is that some form of subsidized public transport is going to continue for the near future. It's, I don't think it's going to be nine euros, but it might be something like 29 euros. You know, that's the number I've been hearing. Or it might be like a yearly ticket instead of a monthly ticket. But essentially some form of public, heavily subsidized public transport. Let's not forget, you know, that monthly ticket before this was 83 euros, which is high. Now, you know, now to me, that sounds absurd, but compared to what you pay in London, it's very little. But all of the things I've heard have basically been that for the foreseeable future, some kind of heavily subsidized public transport is going to continue. It just might not be exactly what we've had for the past few months. Final story. This week, the campaign group Enough is Enough held an enormous rally in Manchester. Speakers included union leaders Dave Ward and Joe Grady and Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham. But perhaps the standout intervention came from a dinner lady speaking to Politics Joe. I'm a dinner lady in Lancashire and just before the summer holidays when the cost of living crisis really started kicking off, um, I've just noticed I spend as much time taking food away from children as I do serving it. And to be honest, it's not what I took the job for. You know, I never dreamt that I'd be having to tell children, you can't have that, you've no money on your account. And it used to be, you know, when I first started a year ago, okay, once a month, there might, you know, parents forget to put money on at the beginning of the month. And you get that. But now you're talking 10 to 15 children a shift every day, every single day. And I'm saying, you can't have that. There's no money, you know. And it's breaking my heart. You know, you see them, they're in a queue full of all their peers and other school children. And it's humiliating for them. It's so humiliating. They just look at you like, well, what am I going to eat? And he's like, I can't give you anything. I'm sorry, you know. Um, and I'm just dreading going back to work. I'm dreading October. And to be honest, it's getting to the point where I'm just like, I don't even think I can do this job anymore. I didn't take the job on to starve children. I'm sorry. It's just, <laughs> you know, it's just something has to give. And I just don't think it should be children's spirits. You know, I'm sorry, I just... That clip has really clearly struck a nerve. It's been, I think, viewed three million times on Twitter. I mean, Dahlia, what can you what can you say after watching? I mean, it's just heartbreaking. Awful. And I think what 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 I found really surprising there actually was that how much she said it's changed in the past year. You know, we often think about okay, Tory austerity is this thing that's been going on for ten years, for fifteen years, and I think it was already so bad. But the fact that it's gotten worse by so much by so many, like by such an intensity in the past year is, is really something. I've always said that there's a real cowardice to austerity politics. Because uh, let's not forget, I think 
thinking of austerity as this thing that only happened for this decade in British in British economic history is kind of a misnomer. Like austerity is very much part of neoliberalism. I would say it's been the kind of governing principle pretty much since since Thatcherism. Um, and there's a real cowardice to to that economic system because the people who make the decisions, like the architects of that system, whether it's, you know, Margaret Thatcher or George Osborne or Rishi Sunak, they aren't the ones that actually have to look people in the eye on the front lines and deliver them the consequences of those policies. You know, they aren't the GP receptionists or the GP doctors having to tell people that, you know, they can't get an appointment for like several weeks. They aren't the administrators of universal credit who have to tell people that their social security is being cut. They aren't, you know, the workers like the one that we just heard from having to tell hungry children in front of their classmates that they don't have enough money to buy lunch that day. That's left to ordinary people that that work. Um, and often women, actually, I think it's a, the people who occupy that role tend to be tend to be women. And we are the ones that have to represent that incredibly cruel system to to the people in our communities and to not only have to face the the trauma and the harm of being denied essential services, but also the trauma of, of having to be the ones to deny those essential services, even though we aren't the ones that made the decision to do so. You know, I remember being um, at a like contraception clinic a few years ago, and I saw this sign by reception saying, you know, basically something along the lines of, Austerity has meant that we can't provide the service that we want to provide to everyone and that needs it. Please don't take this out on our staff who are trying as hard as they can with the resources that we have. And the implication there was basically that staff have experienced abuse from patients who are desperate and scared and heartbroken and are reacting in ways that you can expect that someone would react when they are afraid for their health and are being denied the care that they need. And they don't have anyone to hold accountable. They, there's no system of accountability to the people who actually made the decision to create it, to create that system, and no way to appeal to them. And so, yeah, they take it out on the person who's in front of them. And so it always really angers me when um, people like Rishi Sunak and George Osborne and whatever do this sort of macho talk about how like the decision to to cut services is so tough and you know they're such a tough and strong leader you know because they've taken that tough decision there's nothing tough about making that abstract decision when it's not going to affect anyone in your community and you're not going to have to actually deliver it to people on the front lines like you wouldn't last 5 minutes on the front line of public services that's what really I was thinking when I heard this woman speak is that, yes, you know, we know the cruelty and the catastrophe of an economic system that is fundamentally based in austerity and shrinking the ability of us to publicly own our essential services and for everyone's needs to be met. It's not only cruel and catastrophic, it's like fundamentally deeply cowardly. And it just makes me feel so disgusted at the architects of that system. I mean, I have the same thing whenever I call my GP. It's always, you've got this recorded message. We're under a lot of pressure at the moment. We're, we're really struggling to see everyone. Please don't be abusive to our staff. And obviously, you know, as you say, that's obviously there, there is never any excuse to be abusive to any 
staff, wherever they work, public services or, or, or whatever. But clearly the reason they're saying that is because the poor service they've been forced to give because th- their money has been cut to the bone over the past 12 years means that some people probably are lashing out because they're in desperate situations. If, if you're very worried about your health and it's very difficult to get a GP appointment, you know, that doesn't justify, obviously, being horrible to a receptionist at a GP clinic, but it's not surprising that it's happening more often. And it's just, you're right, the cowardly decisions that are made in Westminster are, you know, severely damaging the, the life chances of vulnerable people and also making the lives of public service workers unlivable because they can't do what they want to be doing, which is helping people. And related to this story, another recent development bit of news, the increase in kids struggling to afford school dinners goes hand in hand with food banks struggling to meet increased demand. Organizations representing 169 food banks have told The Guardian that the number of people seeking emergency help has grown dramatically in the last few weeks. This was all while donations have shrunk. So The Guardian report that of the 169 providers, nearly 70% said they may need to turn people away or shrink the size of emergency rations this winter. Almost three quarters said food donation levels had dropped since April, despite the spiralling demand. The Guardian also report that volunteers in food banks are facing the same emotional challenges described by the dinner lady in that clip. Sonia Antonio-Pomor runs the London-based charity Olive Branch Aid. She told the paper this, Like many organizations, we know that the coming months as winter begins to bite will be the hardest one yet for many. We also know that our volunteers will find it difficult as we will only have resources to be able to help a fraction of the people we are expecting to see in difficulties this winter. So another example of of exactly what we're talking about, the consequences of austerity, terrible for people who relied on those public services, also terrible for people who are providing those public services because they can't do what they want to do, which is offer a good service to everyone who needs it. And because of decisions made by Tory cabinet ministers who've never worked in jobs like this, who've never struggled in their lives, they are going to have to go through that really horrible situation of saying no to people who they do not want to say no to, people who should not be told no when they're asking for support because they genuinely need support. But we have stripped the state back to such a degree that people can't get the help they need. All, all decisions made by people who are extraordinarily rich who have never struggled in their lives. Now, we are coming to a close. I want to close the show by sending our solidarity to colleagues at Reach PLC. Reach PLC own the Mirror, the Express, and a bunch of local papers. Their CEO took home £4 million last year, but editorial staff are being offered a real terms pay cut, and today they've gone on strike. To find out more about that dispute, you can check out this excellent piece by my colleague Moya Lovia-McLean, who reported on how bosses at the group encourage their lower-paid colleagues to get side hustles to try and add to their wages. The link is in the description. Of course, that kind of dynamic would never happen at Navarra because we're all paid the same. Dahlia, it has been a pleasure being joined by you this Wednesday, even if we had a bunch of difficult topics to go through. Yeah, it was lovely to see you again. I missed you last week. <laughs> I was on annual leave, but with, with a cold, so I actually just spent most of it um, in my house with, with a dog I share. We will be back on Friday at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.